A quick note. Due to social distancing, parts of this episode were recorded in ad hoc home studios. All this week, we've been bringing you bonus episodes, conversations with people making difficult decisions in response to the coronavirus outbreak. While coronavirus is rightly taking up most of our daily attention, other important health policy is still happening every day. New federal rules on sharing patient data dropped last Monday. A public option bill passed its first hurdle in Colorado. And today, Friday, March 20th, is Match Day when thousands of medical students find out where and in what field they'll spend the next several years training to become doctors. Although the dramatic envelope opening ceremonies that are a hallmark of Match Day won't happen this year, the matching still will. What many people may not know is the formula used to fund these training programs makes it harder for some parts of the country to address physician shortages. And as fears grow over whether our health system can handle the expected surge of coronavirus patients, it's even more clear how much it matters that communities have the doctors they need when they need them. I'm economist and Harvard physician Babu Jenna. And I'm Dan Gorenstein. From the Annenberg Studio at the University of Pennsylvania, this is Tradeoffs. So, Bapu, I know Match Day is usually this big ceremony, and that's not happening in a lot of places this year because of coronavirus. But to get a sense of what the day is like in a normal year, what was your Match Day like? I remember it quite Clearly, actually, uh, we were all in the main auditorium at the University of Chicago in the same room where we used to have all of our big events. And I remember sitting in the back of that big auditorium with all these people I'd been in school with for several years. And we all had these white envelopes. And I remember being so stressed because I'd been dating this woman for the last six months. And it wasn't at all clear that we would match in the same place. And whatever was in that envelope, That was where I was going to be for the next several years. Okay, Papu, before we hear the end of that story, just a bit of context, right? Residencies like yours are paid for mostly by the federal government, nearly $20 billion a year. Right. It's actually been a part of Medicare from the beginning, and that's 50 years ago. President and Mrs. Johnson and Vice President Humphrey arrive for ceremonies that will make the Medicare bill a part of Social Security coverage. It was supposed to be a short-term thing until they found a different way to fund it, But that different way never happened. And here's an interesting fact. Data shows actually that most doctors end up working in the same state where they did their residency. So, Bapu, where you train, what's in that white envelope actually has an impact on where you practice. Yeah, that's exactly what happened to me. I did my residency here in Boston. I've pretty much stayed here ever since. And that girl I was dating also matched in Boston. She's now my wife. But here's the thing, Dan. My wife and I trained and stayed in Boston, and this is a place where there's more hospitals than Starbucks. But if you look at federal numbers, 80 million people live in areas without easy access to primary care. More than 100 million are in places without sufficient mental health providers. To really understand how residency programs are contributing to this problem, hey, Candace, how are you? I'm good. I can hear you. And I am um, using my earbuds. I decided to call Candace Chen. When we have issues with not enough primary care doctors, there's no way to say to hospitals, we need you to 
produce more primary care doctors, or we need you to produce more psychiatrists. She's an associate professor at George Washington University, a primary care pediatrician, and one of the top experts in the country on physician workforce and equity. We did a study a couple of years ago looking at the distribution of Medicare funding across states, and it was shocking to see that one state, New York, received 20% of all of the Medicare funding support for residency programs. That's one-fifth of all the funding support across the United States. In contrast, more than half, 29 states, each received less than 1% of the, of the federal support. Wow. Um, I know that there's a federal report from a few years back that showed something like 1% of this funding was going to rural communities, even though almost 20% of the population is rural. This doesn't really sound very equitable. Why does the system work like this? The system works this way because in 1997, Congress capped the number of residents each hospital could receive support for. And hospitals and communities in the middle of the country, in Montana, you know, down to Texas, hadn't started as many residency programs. Um, and over the course of the next 20 years, we've seen growth in different states. So freezing the Medicare support to 1997 levels has really affected the ability of some of these communities to uh, expand their residency training programs to meet the needs of, the, of communities. You know, Dan, what Candace is describing with the caps and the struggles states face, all that is playing out in Idaho. We're a poster child for the type of place that gets left out of a formula like that. That's Ted Epperly a family medicine doctor in Idaho, a state that ranks near the bottom in the U.S. in physicians and residents per capita. That means that some people, especially in rural areas, have to travel hundreds of miles to see a doctor. In Lincoln County here in Idaho, we have one physician for the entire county. Keith Davis is his name. I know Keith well. He's an excellent person. And Keith has been there for 25 years administering to about 2,700 people. That kind of doctor-to-patient ratio can be dangerous. Routine problems go on longer or become more significant. And so in those places, they live sicker and they die younger. Research shows that having more primary care doctors is associated with better outcomes and fewer deaths. Even two decades ago, when Ted took over a family medicine residency program in Idaho, he understood his state was headed for a crisis. Already short on docs, the solution was obvious to him. Get more people to train in Idaho. There's data that shows compellingly that 50 to 75 percent of physicians will stay within 100 miles of where they train. But to do that, he needed money. Knowing a cash infusion from D.C. was out of the question, Ted looked for a homegrown fix. Uh, it's more important uh, to, to build the kind of relationships with hospitals, uh, with legislators, with the governor, so that you could start over time to educate them about what potential solutions were. Ultimately, his approach worked. In 2017, state leaders asked him to put together a roadmap. He sketched out a plan to more than double the number of residency programs and new residents they trained each year over the next decade. But it wasn't going to be cheap. The price tag? 
$180,000 per trainee per year. The strategy was to say, look, let's divide this into thirds. A third will be paid for by the program itself through its own clinical revenue. A third will come from what's called the sponsoring institution. And we asked the state then for the other third. All three groups agreed to take on that shared burden. And now, three years later, Idaho has trained hundreds of new residents. Ted's honest with himself, though. He knows adding more residents is just part of the solution. In rural areas especially, he believes access to telehealth is key. But on a personal level, he says beefing up the state's residency programs may be the most important thing he does. Not that delivering 1,500 babies and taking care of 100,000 patients hasn't been important to me, but to be able to help create a system that could uh, continue for the next 100-plus years in generating a workforce, that was meaningful. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I know there are a couple of other states that have taken steps like Ted did in Idaho. So I asked Candace Chen from George Washington if she thought Idaho was an anomaly or more of a blueprint. States are definitely acting in this area, and I think it's a real demonstration of how great the need is. States like Georgia, Texas, Oklahoma, California are making explicit investments in trying to fill the gaps that their communities are seeing. But when you're approaching $20 billion of federal funding that's not producing the doctors that states and local communities need, having states with very limited budgets throw more money at a system that has a lot of money in it that could be redirected to to actually meet their needs, states can't do it alone. And Candace, I know that there was a big report from the Institute of Medicine back in 2014 uh, that recommended some pretty big changes to the system. Can you walk us through what those recommendations were? Sure. The Institute of Medicine effectively found that the Medicare funding and the way that it's set up doesn't make a lot of sense. And so they recommended taking about 30% of the total funding back from the teaching hospitals and putting it back into the system to get very specific outcomes, things like focusing on primary care or high-need specialties. Have any of these ideas been tried? The big reform ideas have not been tried. Um, One of the reforms that 
we have seen is the Teaching Health Center program. And the Teaching Health Center program was established in the Affordable Care Act. And compared to overall about a third of all residents staying in primary care, teaching health centers see over 60% of their residents stay in primary care. And then on top of it, they see 60% of their residents staying in medically underserved communities or in rural settings. So really good outcomes that show us that if you make smart investments, you can get the outcomes that communities really need. We talked with Atul Grover from the American Association of Medical Colleges And he told us that by making changes to how Medicare funds residencies, it's going to disrupt what happens at academic teaching hospitals, places that lots of us would agree are really important to our health care system. Here's what he said. There's stuff that should be done at the edges, but probably ought not to involve dismantling the basis of the system because... Our healthcare system is clunky, but you're hard-pressed to find anybody who would say we don't have the best clinicians in the world. And I don't think you want to disrupt that system. Do you think he's right about the risks that come with making some of these changes to the funding formula for the residency program? I understand the fear of pulling back up to 30% of the funding. I don't think anybody is proposing that we stop funding the largest academic medical centers. I think what people are proposing and asking is, can they do it with a little bit less support so that some of that funding can go to really address the inequities that are in the system right now and mean the difference between whether communities have a primary care doctor to go to, whether their communities are going to have an OBGYN or family medicine doctor who can deliver their baby. When we think of Match Day, we tend to think of young, bright medical students so excited to find out where their training is going to go next. This year, though, with coronavirus, Match Day is a reminder of how critical it is to have enough doctors to meet the need. Really, every match day is also about all of us, the patients those doctors will one day serve or not. While residency funding is only one challenge to improving access to medical care, research shows it has a clear role to play. Big changes would likely disrupt a training system that has produced some of the world's great physicians. Many believe, though, that some disruption is necessary after relying on effectively the same funding formula for more than 50 years and expecting different results. Some states like Idaho are already taking steps to get those results. But when it comes to our federal tax dollars, we're still spending billions on residencies that leave millions of people without access to the doctors they need. I'm Bob Jenna, And I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. As a fan of Tradeoffs, we want to know more about what you think of the podcast, so we're asking you to take a few minutes to fill out a survey we've assembled. You can find a link for it in the show notes or go to tradeoffs.org slash survey. The Tradeoffs team is producers Ryan Levy and Vicki Stern, sound designer Andrew Perella, and editor Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this week from White Wolf and Blue Dot Sessions. We had help on this episode from Diane Rittenhouse, John O'Shea, LaSharn Hughes, Aaron Freyer, Manant Singh, the GME Initiative, Deborah Weinstein, Vinit Arora, 
Elaine Batchelor, Gerald Ackerman, Matt Walker, Molly Benedum, Stacy Silverman, Janet Kaufman, Dan Burke, Daniel Dorsey, Vishal Ketpal, Natalie Neal, Tara Blair, Randy Loggenecker, Graham Ball, Gray Milkowski, and Paul Cox. Additional thanks this week to Jeff Cooperman, Cassie Mills, Amy Brierly, Alap Vora, Heather Klosaritz, Serge Emile Simpson, Gaurav Dial, Kai Romero, Sneha Dave, Sandy Sini, Amy Phillips, Ashish Jha, and Farzad Mostashari. Tradeoffs is supported in part by the California Healthcare Foundation, Arnold Ventures, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Additional support from the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics and the Center for Public Health Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of Tradeoff staff, advisors, or funders. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.